Well, over my uh, short time here on earth, I've met a lot of people. And as you know, when you meet people and you're getting to know a new friend, you often ask questions. And so I've been asked lots of questions like, hey, Aaron, where were you born? And to that, I answered, I was born in St. Thomas, Ontario. Or another question might be, how many siblings do you have? Well, I have, I have five siblings and three step siblings. And where do you fit in the order? I'm the second born. Others might say, are your parents still alive? I'm like, yes, by God's grace, both my parents are are still living. Others might say, what's what's your ethnic heritage? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just kind of a mixture of a lot of things, but I know I'm descended from Adam. I can answer that. So those would all be questions that we would consider, I think, appropriate. You You could ask me those questions and it wouldn't be weird. It wouldn't be awkward. But then there are questions you shouldn't ask when you're meeting someone because they would genuinely be very weird and probably not well received. So no one has ever come up to me and asked me questions like, well, were your parents married when you were conceived? (laughs) Or how were you conceived? Or what was your dad's response when he found out your mom was pregnant? Did he consider bailing out? Like those would be really weird questions to ask a person, would they not? And yet those questions are answered in the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. In the birth narratives of Jesus Christ, some information is given to us that might make you at first glance to scratch your head and say, why do we need to know that? Like, why do we need to know that Jesus was conceived of a virgin? Why do we need to know that Joseph was second guessing whether he wanted to stay in the relationship? Why do we need to know that he was a descendant of King David, a reference to his ethnic heritage? Why do we need to know these things? Well, these questions are not in the Bible to make us feel awkward. They're in the Bible because they're important. There's no throwaway lines in the Bible. There's no filler material, no soybean in the Bible. What we have in the word of God is important. And so the Bible goes to great detail to chart out for us the virgin conception of Christ, the marital status of his parents, his father's initial response to the news that his Wife Mary was pregnant, and that's because the virgin birth actually matters when it comes to understanding our salvation. And the response of those early disciples, one could arguably say that Jesus' first two disciples were actually Mary and Joseph. And the the initial responses of Mary and Joseph to what God was doing in their lives matters and teaches us something about how we should respond to God's revelation of himself through Christ. Now, before I take you to the gospels, we're gonna go to Matthew chapter one. You can, you're welcome to get there in advance. But before we get there, I, I want to just give an example, a sad example. Frankly, I'd, I'd rather not share it with you on a certain level because it's, it's pretty bad. But I want to give you an example of an individual that clearly didn't understand the importance of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He was a pastor. He pastored about two hours, two and a half hours away from here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, about 10 years ago. His name was Rob Bell. And he he wrote a book called The Velvet Elvis. And this is an excerpt from his book as he comments on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice in this 
statement that not only does he do violence to the authority of scripture, but he clearly does not understand the absolute necessity of a virgin born savior. He says, quote, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus has a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing. By the gospel writers, they threw it in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and the Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. This is his question. He goes on to say, now I affirm the historic Christian faith, which includes the virgin birth, but if the whole faith falls apart when we re-examine or rethink one spring, then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? End quote. Well, I would say to that, that the virgin birth is not just one spring that can be added or subtracted like sprinkles on the top of a cake. The virgin birth is not given to us to sort of make the gospel narrative more fascinating, more fantastical. The virgin birth of Christ, as we're going to see today and tomorrow, this is, a, this is not two sermons, by the way, this is one sermon, I'm gonna preach it over two days. The virgin birth and the incarnation of Jesus Christ is absolutely fundamental to, the, to our very salvation and to the identity and qualifications of Jesus Christ as the Davidic king. Now, clearly we see in this man's statement that he's not only casting doubt on the authority of scripture because the scriptures say as much in more than one gospel, but he failed to understand the importance of the virgin birth. But I, I just like to share this with you tonight, that the virgin birth is critical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's because we have a virgin born Messiah that we have a savior. And if we didn't have a virgin born Messiah, we wouldn't have a savior. He wouldn't be qualified. And because he is savior, we must submit to him. So we wanna flesh out those two thoughts tonight. We're gonna reverse them and go first of all to a little bit more of an explanation or an exploration of the submission that we see from Joseph and Mary to God's revelation of himself through Christ. And then the importance, we'll, we'll just start to get into the importance of the virgin birth and the identity of Christ. And we'll follow that up tomorrow morning on Christmas day. So let's go to Matthew chapter one. I'm gonna read verses 18 through 25. And again, God isn't trying to make us awkward here, but he's wanting us to understand the identity of Jesus and his purpose. The way he was conceived matters. Jesus' earthly father's response to this event matters and the status of Mary and Joseph's marriage also matters. So here's what the Bible says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, meaning that as the gospel writer presents this narrative to us, he presents it as historical fact. This is how it happened. It's not mythologizing at all. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, meaning before they consummated, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband, Joseph, you might think, okay, is that a typo? Because isn't betrothal kind of like engagement? Why would he be called her husband if they were not married yet and they were betrothed? Well, we'll unpack that in a moment or two. But it says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, which speaks to his character, and unwilling to put her to shame, which further speaks to his character, resolved to divorce her quietly. Instead of making a scandal out of it, you can imagine how painful this information was initially received by him. But as he considered these things, so he's not the kind of guy that's gonna make a knee-jerk decision. He's, He's a methodical, thoughtful, reflective individual. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, that's important. We'll come back to it. Do not fear, that's important, to take Mary as your wife, I thought she already was, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you, so this is Joseph's assignment, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, whose name, by the way, was Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You know what that means? Well, it tells us, God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. That's important. He took his wife. But knew her not meaning he did not consummate the marriage until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Well, here we have Joseph framed up in the gospel as a very righteous man, a very just man. And what does he do when God speaks? He submits himself to the will of God. Brothers and sisters, it's critical for us at every turn to analyze and assess ourselves and to make sure that we are continuing to be committed to submitting ourselves to the will of God. There's no Josephs in this room. They're gonna have wives named Mary who will give birth to the eternal son of God. This was a one-off circumstance. But Joseph had human fears and rightly so. And yet he chooses to surrender them to the will of God for his life. And as with all great servants of God throughout history, you're not gonna make it very far down the path of your Christian spiritual journey before you two are subjected to fear, to public misunderstanding, to public shaming, to public scoffing. Mary would be subjected to that because in the eyes of the onlookers, She was a promiscuous woman. Joseph would be subjected to that, this accusation that he was being played the fool by a promiscuous woman. God understanding his his fear, I mean, it's the kind of fear that you and I would, I'm sure, also have if we were in that circumstance. Understanding his fear comes to him. And the first thing God does is he says, do not fear. So he addresses the, the emotional angst that Joseph was experiencing, take Mary as your wife. In other words, don't be afraid of these crazy circumstances that you find yourself in. Don't be afraid of what people will think of you. Don't be a man pleaser. 
Don't be afraid of your image. Don't be afraid of your reputation. Don't spend all your time trying to head off at the past, all the gossip, all the slander, all the public maligning, all the media pressure, all the comments you might experience from your fellow university students saying to you that you're, you're a fool if you're a Christian. Worry about that stuff. Do what God has assigned for you to do. He had an assignment and you have an assignment. Do what God has assigned for you to do. Now, in our church, I think I have six weddings on my schedule for next year because we like to see young people get engaged and there's some engaged couples in our church. And the way it works in our culture is that a person, a couple gets engaged and then a few months or a year later, whatever it is, we have the, the formal wedding. But the engagement period doesn't mean she's your husband, or your wife, she's just your fiance. But in, in the Jewish tradition, it worked differently. There was a betrothal period, which was far more than an engagement period. It was a legally binding agreement. So in this respect, Joseph and Mary were already betrothed, meaning there was a legal agreement in place that they were married. This is why Mary could call Joseph her husband and Joseph could call Mary his wife, but they had not yet consummated the marriage. There was sort of a part two to it, a part one and a part two. They were in the part one phase. So there was a legally binding agreement here, but that period of time primarily existed to ensure that your wife was a virgin. And so you understand how titanically cataclysmic the news was when Joseph was told that his wife was actually expecting a child. And I must say that if this was a situation I was in and the angel of the Lord appeared to me, I might be scratching my head thinking, like, is this, am I just making this up? Is this just a dream that I ate some bad pepperoni last night? Like, is this, is this the real deal? But the amazing thing about Joseph is he just kind of gets out of bed and he accepts it. This man demonstrated radical submission to God's revelation of himself in his life. Behind the scenes, we know the full story. We've probably read this story many, many times, this account. But Joseph had never read this in advance. This was a new thing for him. Imagine all the, the human desires that probably perplexed him, a desire to, to defend yourself, to defend your own reputation, not to look like you're a fool, a desire to uphold your moral standards. Clearly he had them. Joseph had thought seriously about dissolving this agreement, but then God visited him and the situation was explained to Joseph. It wasn't explained to the watching world. The, the word of God was not written yet. These gospel Events were not written yet. This was revelation that God gave to Joseph. God didn't put up billboards around town and say, you know, this is what I said to Joseph, just so everybody knows, this is, this is actually a virgin birth. He still had to endure the apparent foolishness of his situation, but he was prepared to do that as an obedient early follower of Christ. He was willing to serve even when accused of wrongdoing. And by the way, this is, this is really what it all boils down to. If you're like, how do I, what is the key? What is the secret to obeying God when it's difficult? 
How about this? Raw obedience to God's expressed commands. That's what it all boils down to. You may not know how it's gonna turn out and have all kinds of assurances that eventually people are gonna understand your circumstances or you'll never second guess yourself, but raw obedience to God's assurances will always bless you, brothers and sisters. And on the other side of it, I've never met anybody yet, I've never met anyone yet that said, I wish I hadn't obeyed. But I've met a lot of people that said, I wish I hadn't disobeyed. So we have here in the gospel narrative, a reminder of radical submission to the will of God, which should increasingly characterize every one of our lives. So let's lean into it. But I'd also like us to consider more fully the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that while Mary was the one who would give birth to the eternal son, Joseph also had a role to play. And Joseph's role, as God speaks to Joseph about his role, helps us to understand Jesus' identity, Jesus' mission, Jesus' function. So you'll notice that when I read the text, I emphasized the fact that Joseph is called there, Joseph, comma, son of David, comma. Okay, why do we need to know that? It's not like every time Joseph's name is mentioned in the Bible, it says son of David, but why, why is it deliberately included in this account when he's about to hear from God about the nature of his earthly son? Well, Joseph was a direct descendant of King David. Of course, there were many men in Israel that would have been at the time because many generations had gone by. By the way, Mary was also a direct descendant of King David. They're not really, not, it's not like they were kissing first cousins, but they were probably like kissing 20th cousins or something like that. So they were both descended from King David. And so in that respect, through his earthly human mother, Jesus in his humanity was a descendant of King David, but it was really important in, in a Jewish culture to also lay out your identity as a male in light of your male ancestry, your father's 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 side of the family. Now, here's what we know about King David. King David was an incredible king. He had governed several hundred years earlier. He was a fascinating character in the word of God. He has a whole bunch of pluses on his resume. He wrote many of our Psalms. He was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a man after God's own heart. And then he had a whole bunch of negatives on his resume. At one point, he'd taken another man's wife and orchestrated things in such a way that her husband would be killed in battle. Think about that. Fell away from God. There's a period of silence in the Psalms that demonstrate that. And then we have his famous confession where he asked the Lord to create in him a clean heart and he is reinvigorated for, for ministry. But he was considered by the Jewish people in light of the prophecies that God had given to them to be the forerunner of a future messianic king, an anointed ruler that would come and rescue and redeem God's people and perfectly fulfill God's law. So with this in mind, if Joseph is described in the text as the son of David, the early listeners would have heard in that the background story. Oh, maybe this is a candidate for 
the messianic kingship of Israel. So Joseph was the one that would bestow that upon his son in, in the human realm. So Joseph, as the head of the home, as the spiritual leader of that marriage and the earthly father of Christ, was essentially asked by God to include Jesus in his household under his name so that he might be reckoned as the son of David and to bear his name in the genealogies of Israel. So Jesus, by way of God's work in Mary, in his virgin conception inside of Mary's body, was reckoned to be the eternal divine son of God, but by way of Joseph, a rightful Davidic claimant to the Messiahship of Israel. And of course, we know that he is in fact that because he is the eternal God man and the only one that's ever lived that came and lived among us and perfectly fulfilled God's laws and then went to the cross and died as a sacrifice for our sin, conquered death, rose again, was revealed to over 500 eyewitnesses and ascended to the right hand of the father where he still is embodied making intercession for us. Now, the second thing that is noteworthy in this text is that Joseph is asked to name the baby Jesus, which would have been the responsibility of the Jewish father. I'm not sure how it would have worked if he'd have said, I'm out of here, but he's asked to name the baby Jesus. Now I have five children of my own, a grandbaby that hopefully will arrive this week. Many of you have kids. And when we have our children, it's an interesting process. After we've had our children name them, we probably forget about it. But I remember the process of trying to pick names. Remember that if you're parents, like going through the baby name book, maybe consulting with some family and friends. And some of them are like, eh, I don't like that one. Or I like that one. Or, well, we were going to pick that name. You can't pick that name. So there's this whole deliberative process that you go through to try to, to just get the right name. Now I've told my kids a great name for them to consider would be Aaron, but I'm not sure they're gonna take me up on that, but we all have our preferences, right? But I've never asked my mother or father this, but I have a suspicion that when they picked my name, they just picked it because they liked the sound of it. I don't think there was a whole lot of thought going into its meaning or its background or its etymology. So say, yeah, we like that name. We'll give them the name Aaron. But in ancient times, as is the case in some cultures today, a name is really, really important because a name communicates something. And here he's asked to name the baby Jesus. And we're told why, for he will save his people from their sins, which tells us that there's something about the name. There's something about the name that is going to be represented in this child's life to come. Now in Greek, the name Jesus is Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, or in English, it can be Joshua or Jesus. And the root meaning of these names in all of those languages, English, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, is to save. This is the actual meaning of the first name Jesus. And the wonderful thing about this statement from God is that we'll come to discover shortly in the gospel narrative 
that his name would become his mission. His name would become his mission. The writer Luke said in Luke 19, 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. There's the mission of Christ in brief. He came to seek and to save the lost. This is how God is glorified in part. Of course, he's glorified by the angelic beings who worship him 24-7 in the throne room. But God is also worshiped as you and I submit ourselves to him, bow at his feet, acknowledge his kingship, repent of our sins, and allow him to rule our lives. He's glorified through that. And Joseph is the one that's asked to give him his name, Jesus, to declare to everyone within earshot that this would be the savior, the son of David, the messianic king that would come to save his people from their sins. By the way, have you been saved? Have you been saved? I suspect that many of you have been. I've been saved. And to be saved means that I need to be saved from something. So what is it that we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sin. We call this the gospel. When we talk about the nature of humanity apart from Christ, the solution that Christ offers, the, the promises that we've staked our lives on as Christians, this is the gospel. But you know what the gospel is predicated upon? The identity of God, the identity of Christ. So what is the identity? Who is God? Who is Christ? What is their fundamental identity? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 to 16, we have this wonderful declaration about the triune God. It says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We've talked about that a lot in our church recently. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, meaning reign. Amen. So fundamentally, he's the king of kings and Lord of lords. And you know what the Bible tells us? One day, everyone will acknowledge it. One day, everybody will acknowledge it. Unto damnation or unto eternal life, one day, everyone will acknowledge that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, and they will confess it. Unto damnation or unto eternal life. Of course, it makes sense to confess it now. Not unto damnation, but unto eternal life. So the gospel is predicated upon the broad gospel from Genesis to Revelation, that there is a king and we are subjects. And if we are subjects, then we must submit to the king. And if we don't submit to the king, then the king will judge us. What is it that the king will judge us upon? Well, the king will judge us upon his laws. Kings create laws, do they not? And God has created laws for us. And God's laws aren't like human laws where, you know, you can speed 99 times, but then if you just keep doing it, eventually you're gonna get pulled over and ticketed. No, God's laws require absolute perfect obedience to them in order to make it to heaven. God's laws require that we measure up to God's standards 
with an absolute 100% grade on the test of life. Now, here's the thing. Nobody can. So we have this quandary. On one hand, God's laws require absolute perfection. Our God is holy, holy, holy. He will not let anyone into heaven who's not absolutely perfect in his sight. And he has laws in place. There's many of them. I'm sure you're familiar with the 10 commandments, but there's hundreds more. And if we do not perfectly measure up to God's commandments, we will be damned for all of eternity. God's laws then serve to both convict us of our sin and to condemn us of our unrighteousness. Now, the good news is, is that God has an opportunity that he makes available for us to be pardoned of our sin. But before we're pardoned of our sin, just listen to this scripture passage from the third chapter of Romans, the 23rd verse, where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I wanted you to see that and hear that just in case you're playing what we, the game we often play, which is called the comparison game. When someone says you're a sinner, you read a text that says you're a sinner. The natural response is, okay, well, yeah, but not as much as the person I brought to church with me tonight or not as much as so-and-so or this person or that person. We play the comparison game, but the only person we really can compare ourselves truly is Christ. And he's perfect. He perfectly fulfilled the laws of God. And none of us can measure up to that because of our sinfulness and because we're in the first Adam who messed everything up. So this is God's verdict. We have his claim. He's the king of kings, his laws, which both convict and condemn. His verdict that all of us alike are sinners and alienated from God. But then we have this declaration. The declaration of an opportunity to be pardoned. If you ever committed a crime and you're seeking a pardon from a king, a queen, a president, you have to acknowledge your guilt. A pardon is not a not guilty verdict. A pardon means I'm guilty, but I want to be mercifully pardoned from it. And here's what Jesus said early on in his ministry. You can see the gospel leaking through the pages of the gospels early on in Mark chapter one. You don't even have to get to John chapter three. Mark chapter one, here's what it says in verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, that is Jesus' earthly cousin, John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, which again is what the gospel's predicated upon. The kingly rule of God. Not all acknowledge it, but it's a reality. And all will one day acknowledge it. The, God, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what is, the, what is the response he calls us to make? Here it is, very simple. Here's the gospel in just a few words. Repent and believe in the gospel. Some believe, but they don't repent. Maybe some repent. They're always do, doing indulgences trying to work it off, but they don't actually believe. But the gospel, in the gospel, we must repent of our sins, turn from our sins, repudiate them, denounce them, and believe that he is king and surrender ourselves to his kingly rule. And then the perfection of Christ is applied to us and we are justified and made right in the eyes of God through the work 
of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we think about the incarnation of Christ, there's a lot of other things we need to discuss yet. Why was the incarnation the fulfillment of ancient prophecy? What's the significance of that? What are the practical blessings of this God with us notion, this Emmanuel notion in the scriptures? And how do these truths fuel our worship as citizens of a new order, as citizens of a new creation, as citizens of the kingdom of God? Well, tonight we're going to rest, but tomorrow we're going to unpack some of these questions as we continue to explore Isaiah's famous prophecy about the coming Messiah. 